Hello, church. Welcome to The Rock. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors. We're continuing our study of Romans. This is part 20. We'll be in chapter 7. Turn there in your Bible. Follow along on your handout. I titled this teaching, The Second Marriage. You remember we divided Romans into five seasons. I'm going to drill this into your head. So, season one, God's sentence. God is holy and perfect and righteous, and we are not. We are sinful and broken. That's the bad news. Season two, that's the good news, that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Best news ever. And now we're in season three. It's all about sanctification. Remember, that's God's process of helping believers grow in holiness and righteousness. When you are, easy for me to say, when you become a Christian, God declares you legally righteous. Sanctification is the process where God helps your life match your position. So you become less sinful. You become more like Jesus Christ. And so we're starting Romans chapter 7 today. In two weeks, Pastor Steele's going to teach. He's going to get into that famous section that talks about the struggle between the old man and the new man. It'll be great. But setting up today's teaching and Caleb's teaching next week, I want to go big picture. So whenever I have a section of the Bible that I'm teaching on, I kind of nerd out on it. I take it and I put it in this website and it tells me what is the most common word in that section. And so I did it for Romans chapter 7. There's one word that pops out 23 times, the law. And then I did the synonym commandments that occurs six times. So the, clearly the theme of Romans chapter 7 is the law. And so Paul, the brilliant scholar, anticipates another question. What is the role of the law or the commandments of God in the life of the Christian? And he's doing this because a couple weeks, the last two weeks, Bill and Brian covered a verse, two verses, that we read and we go, okay, no big deal. But Jewish readers of Romans, this would have stopped them in their tracks. Romans Chapter 6, verse 14, for the sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace by no means? We go, all right, great. We're not under the law. A Jewish reader reading Romans right now, if they're drinking their coffee, they're spitting their coffee out of their mouth. Wait, what? Not under the law? Are you anti-law, Paul? Are you against the commandments of God? This was an accusation against Paul and the apostles in the first century. You Christians, you're against God's law. You're against the commandments of God. And even if the reader of Romans wasn't hostile, as a Jewish Christian, they'd say, well, what is the role of the law of God in the life of a Christian? And when I say law, what do I mean? Am I talking like don't speed and pay your taxes and all that kind of stuff? No. The Jewish audience reading this, when you say the law, it means one thing. It means the rules, the regulations, the commandments of God given to the Israelites through Moses at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, plus 600 other laws. It's the rules that the Israelites live by. It's what God wanted them to do and not do. And so when Paul writes here, he says, we're not under the law. Some readers would think, oh, you Christians, you're anti-law. Is that true? Of course not. 
The New Testament is full of verses praising God's law or God's commandments. Even these verses that Caleb and Steele will cover the next few weeks. Look how Paul speaks about the law. Romans 7, 12. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. 7.14, for we know that the law is spiritual. 7.22, I delight in the law of God and my inner being. So the law is good. Paul is not anti-law. The New Testament, Christianity, for that matter, every, they're all favorable towards God's law. You go, well, if the law is good, but we're not under the law, how does that work? Remember, God made the law. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. There's something wrong with you and me. So what is the purpose of God's law? Here's three purposes. Purposes of God's law, to show us our sinfulness and need for a Savior, to see what, who God is and what God values, and to know how to grow in holiness. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into Romans chapter 7. We're going to look at the role of the law in the life of a believer. God, I thank you for tonight. I thank you, God, for strong worship. I thank you for a room full of your sons and daughters that want to learn your word. Ask God that I would just be your messenger, that you would speak through me, that you would speak through your word and teach your sons and daughters here in this room right now. We say all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So an illustration to help us understand the role of the law in the life of a believer. Paul shares an illustration, an editorial note. This is just an illustration. Keep it at face value. So verses 1, 2, and 3 are the illustration. Verses 4, 5, and 6 are the lesson. And this is not a comprehensive teaching on marriage and divorce and second marriages. Paul is simply sharing an illustration with us so we can learn about the law and the life of a believer. So Romans chapter 7, verse 1, Paul writes, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So brothers... This is like an affectionate term. Paul is a Jewish Christian writing to Jewish Christians, reading this. He knows they love the God, the law of God. He knows it's very near to their heart. They had pride in it. They're like, God gave us his commandments. That's a good thing. So to be told, you're not under the law, that could be offensive to them. So he speaks to them very tenderly. He says, brothers, and then that phrase, those who know the law, again, telling us it's written to Jews. So the big idea of this verse is that the law is only binding on someone as long as they're alive. Hey, dead guy, go, go mow your lawn. Hey, dead guy, you pay us your taxes. Dead people don't obey the laws. It doesn't apply to them because they are dead. Your first point on your handout, the law doesn't apply to dead people. You are dead to the law, Christian. Law is only binding on the living. Go, how am I dead to the law? Remember back in chapter 6, it said, in Christ, we are united in his death, burial, and resurrection. So because of that, you are dead to the law, Christian, through Jesus. So Paul continues the illustration, verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So to understand this verse, we need to understand marriage. So why did God make marriage? Notice I said God made marriage. The government doesn't make marriage. People don't make marriage. The IRS did not make marriage. The Supreme Court did not make marriage. God made marriage. Why? A few reasons. 
One reason, to mutually complete one another. It says in Genesis 2, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him or suitable for him. So God made marriage so that a husband and wife can be friends, be companions, take care of each other. That oneness. Another reason God made marriage, to multiply a godly heritage. It says in Genesis 1, God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God wants husbands and wives in marriage to have children. So companionship and children are great reasons for marriage, but there's a third reason. I think it's the most important reason or purpose for marriage. It's to model Christ and the church. It says in Ephesians 5, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Did you hear that? Marriage between a husband and wife is ultimately meant to be a picture to the entire world of Christ and the church. So unity or oneness in marriage is absolutely critical. If we're going to model to the world what our marriage is supposed to be, and there's this beautiful picture that should happen in marriage. Christ is the head. He's the leader of the church. He is loving the church and serving the church and giving himself for the church sacrificially. And the church submits to Christ and helps Christ and respects and obeys his leadership. Now, the problem is we don't see this being done well. So this idea that a husband would love and lead his wife tenderly or that a wife would unite with and support her husband, it's foreign to us. It's strange to us. But when it works like it should, it's a beautiful dance. Even it's throughout the New Testament, this idea of the, the lamb, the marriage supper of the lamb, even in Revelation, Revelation 19, talking about the marriage supper of the lamb, it says, let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the lamb. So this is our future. The global church of Jesus Christ is going to be with God forever in heaven. It will be a picture too wonderful to describe. See, your marriage, my marriage, is supposed to be a picture to the whole world of Christ and his church. So 23 years ago, my wife and I got married in a church in Colorado. There we are, back in the day. So my vows that day were, I, Josh, take you, Krista, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death parts us, I will be yours and yours alone as long as we both shall live. So why did I say that, till death parts us? Why is marriage designed for a lifetime? There are many verses that support this, but big picture, our marriage is supposed to be a picture to the whole world of Christ and his church. That's meant to last. So when Jesus was asked about divorce, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 19. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So God's plan for marriage is that it would last a lifetime. This is 2023, so I need to define marriage for all of you. According to the Bible, 
Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in a single, exclusive, lifelong union. And if you would like to know the biblical support for this, please email me. I'd be happy to send you the verses. But what happens when your spouse dies? You are released from your marriage vows. That's what it said just now in Romans 7, 2. Paul states it again in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Only in the Lord means she needs to marry a Christian. So the Bible is clearly teaching marriage is in effect until you or your spouse dies. So biblically speaking, there are three reasons to end a marriage. One, death. Two, adultery. Or three, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. This is not a comprehensive teaching on those subjects. But if you want to dig deeper, look at Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. God's good plan for marriage is that it would last a lifetime. You guys have heard of Henry Ford. He made the Ford Motor Company. He built all kinds of Model T cars back in the day. He and his wife were married 59 years. And he was asked what his secret was to having a good marriage. He said this humorously, the formula is the same as in car manufacturing. Stick to one model. That's good. So marriage is a sacred union between a husband and wife. It's created by God. It's meant to last a lifetime, and it's designed to be a picture to the whole world of Christ and his, the church. And marriage is only binding as long as your spouse is alive. You are free to remarry if your spouse dies. I saw personally a very powerful picture of this years ago. One of my friends in the church, he was married, had two kids, and one spring morning, his wife died tragically and suddenly. And I heard the news and I raced over to his house and I was actually like hugging him and holding him as the paramedics carried his wife's dead body out of the house. Incredibly shocking, incredible grief. I performed her funeral. My friend and I, in the weeks and months that followed, we talked through the grief and processed all that. But with time, my friend's heart healed. His grief subsided, and with time, he fell in love with a different woman in our church, a single mother with a few kids of her own. And so this man and this woman, they started dating. They got engaged. I did their pre-marriage counseling, and then I was honored to be able to perform their wedding ceremony. That's what this passage is talking about. Marriage is only binding as long as your spouse is alive. So now Paul concludes the illustration, but first I need to say this. Many of my friends in this room are divorced and remarried. Please hear me. God offers nothing but grace and mercy and forgiveness as we repent of our sins and turn to him. At the same time, we cannot be afraid to discuss what the Bible clearly teaches on subjects like marriage and divorce and second marriages. So, verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So this passage and many others clearly teach that God's plan for marriage is one man and one woman to be married to each other for a lifetime. It's God's good plan. It's not because God is mean or restrictive. It's because God knows the incredible heartache and suffering that divorce can bring into your life, your ex's life, and your kids' lives. There's a price to be paid for leaving your marriage. We know that. But again, this is not a comprehensive teaching 
on these subjects. I'd be happy to send you some links of old messages we did. But the Bible unequivocally teaches that death dissolves the marriage union. The living spouse is free to remarry. That's the lesson Paul is making here. But tragically, some cultures have not practiced this around the globe at different times. For example, in India, a couple hundred years ago, there was something called sati. That was when, when the husband died, the widow was Go back a picture. That's when the widow, when the husband died, the widow was burned to death in a fire with her husband's body. When the British conquered India, they were shocked and horrified at this. I read a story of a, a priest that said to the British commander, this is our custom. And the British commander famously replied, so be it. The burning of widows is your custom. My nation has a custom, too. It's that when men burn women alive, we hang them. <laughs> he said, let's all act according to our national customs. Thankfully, this was not typical. Most cultures on our planet believe that death ends the marriage union. Some of you are thinking, well, what about eternal marriage? Some of you have been taught that marriage lasts for eternity. Interestingly, Jesus addressed this in Matthew 22. The religious leaders gave Jesus his question. They said, there was a woman who was married to seven different men and each man died and she remarried seven times in heaven. Who is she married to? Here was his reply in Matthew 22. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus is teaching that marriage is for this life. If your spouse dies, you are released from your marriage. So that's the illustration, one, two, and three. Now we're going to move to the lesson, four, five, and six, verse four. Likewise, so in the same way as what we just talked about, my brothers, again, that affectionate term, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So it should be noted, the law didn't die. You died. Again, how did we die? We are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So your marriage to the law is over, Christian. There has been a death. Your death, my death, our death in Christ terminated our marriage to the law. And now we are free to marry Jesus. Your second blank. The death of the believer in Christ breaks the power of the law over him. That's good news because the law condemns you. The law demands your death. By God's law, you are a guilty sinner who deserves death. Remember, Brian covered this famous verse last week, 623, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as an unbeliever, you are earning death every time you sin. But by faith, the believer is forever dead to the power and the penalty of the law, which is amazing news. So now that we have died to the law, we're free to remarry. So who do we remarry? Who's our second marriage to? Again, back to verse 4. That you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Who is that? Jesus. You died to the law, so you are free to marry Jesus. And for the record, church, that is the eternal marriage. That's amazing news. The Christian is free to remarry your third blank. For the Christian, their second marriage is to Jesus. 
So Jesus is basically saying to you, I, Jesus, take you, insert your name, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, for the rest of eternity. That's what we just talked about. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the church, the bride of Christ with the Lord forever in heaven. So as a Christian, we're called to forsake all others and be faithful to our spouse, Jesus Christ. Think about this, Christian. You even took Christ's name. You're now a Christian. You're a Christ one, a Christ follower, a little Christ. And what does this new life involve? Back to verse 4. At the end there, that we may bear fruit to God or for God. So back in 2014, I have all my tree stories. Apparently, I like telling tree stories. So in 2014, my sons and I planted that little baby nectarine tree. And for nine years, this tree has been growing. That is what the tree looks like now in the upper right-hand corner. Now we've been pulling off basket after basket after basket of nectarines from our tree. My kids have also grown a lot in the last nine years. How does the fruit grow? It just stays connected to the branch and it grows. So this verse is teaching us salvation has a product, it's fruit. There's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. The tree produces fruit through the branches. Our relationship with Jesus produces fruit. What does fruit mean? We're not like growing nectarines on the side of our head. What are we talking about? We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit at a minimum. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Whenever you see God's Spirit working in your life to bring more of these things about, that's the fruit of the Spirit. So sanctification is where you have more and more fruit in your life. Hey, Dad, you're growing in patience. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Hey, daughter, you're growing in self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Our next verse, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What a contrast. Verse 4, we're bearing fruit for God. Verse 5, before Jesus, we're bearing fruit for death. So what is the flesh? That means your body in this verse. What are our sinful passions? That's the impulse to think about and do evil things. What are our members? That's the parts of our body we sin with, our, our mind, our eyes, our mouth, our hands, our feet, etc. What does that mean? Our sinful passions were aroused by the law. The word aroused means energized in the original language. Caleb is going to expand on this next week. But I have a quick illustration. When we hear a rule, we like to break the rule. That's like human nature. My son provided me a fantastic illustration of this a couple <laughs> weeks ago. We we're walking down these stairs on the header. There's a sign, do not touch. And he like touched it. And I said, why'd you do that? He said, I don't know. I just wanted to. <laughs> so I said, come back up here. And I took a picture of it to document the moment. I'm guessing if there was no sign, my son would have not touched the header. <laughs> Throw that sign up there, and my son's like, now suddenly I have an urge to touch this. <laughs> so the law creates in our rebellious heart a desire to disobey. Next week, Caleb is going to expand on this. This is just a teaser right now. But what is the fruit that leads to death? 
Galatians 5 has some death fruit. This is all the brokenness and pain and heartache that comes into our life through our sin and the sin of others. Look at, look at Galatians chapter 5. For the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Our old life, living in the flesh with our sinful passions, brought bad fruit, rotten fruit that the Bible says leads to death. That's quite the contrast there in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit and the death fruit. So you can bear fruit to God or you can bear death fruit. And it's important to remember, when you died to the law, you remarried Jesus. When you died to the law, you're not like, I'm single. No, you get married to Jesus right away. Again, what is the purpose of the law? Again, going back to our points, to show us our sinfulness and need for a Savior. Before we are Christian, the law showed us that we are sinners and we need to be saved. The law is like an x-ray. It shows us something is wrong. My son, McLean, he broke his collarbone last month. We took him to the hospital and they x-rayed it and the bone was snapped there. You can see in that. Sorry, I should have warned you. The x-ray did not fix a thing. The x-ray just showed us, oh, you got a problem. So my son had to wear a sling for a number of weeks and avoid physical activity. So again, as a Christian, we are no longer under the penalty of the law. We have been saved, but the law still serves these two important functions. It teaches us about God and it helps us grow in holiness. Our last verse, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So verse 5 is all about the old self. Verse 6 is about the new way, the way of the Spirit. The last few weeks, Bill and Brian have talked about how sin was our master, how sin was a cruel master, and now we have a new master, Jesus Christ. We're not going to repeat those points here but I love verses 4, 5, and 6 because it's so much deeper and richer than that. You don't just have a new master. You have a new husband. You have the perfect husband, Jesus Christ, who loves you perfectly. And so we died to the law so we can serve in the new way of the spirit. The old way of the written code, that's trying to follow all these rules, trying to save yourself. The new way of the spirit is getting a new heart being born again, being transformed, God's Spirit changing you from the inside out. And it's not that we have to, it's now that we get to. If you told me, Josh, you have to take your wife on a date next week, I'd be like, you don't really understand me or my marriage at all. I get to take my wife on a date. Here's a, a hiking date we went on this summer. I get to go hang out with a woman I love and talk to her and hang out with her and flirt with her and have a great time with her. So you're made, so for the Christian, it's not about the get to, it's not about the have to's, it's about the get to's. We're dead to the law, we're dead to the written code. It can't condemn us anymore. We're made alive in Jesus. We're married to Jesus, so we serve him by the Spirit and we bear fruit. It's about the I get to's versus the I have to's. So your last blank. For the Christian, it's about the I get to instead of the I have to. 
So I'll end this way. Some of you listening to me right now, your life is described perfectly by verse 5. Living in the flesh, all of the sinful passions, and all of it is going to lead to your ultimate death physically and spiritually someday. And all the law does for you is shows you are a sinner and you need a Savior. If you're not a Christian, now is the time to fix this. Make today the day you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Talk to me, talk to one of my co-pastors, talk to one of our deacons, go to the connections booth. It's time to die to the sin in your life, die to the law, and get married to Jesus, basically. For those of you that are Christians, do you understand this profound truth? You have died to the law. It's no longer about the written code. Jesus took the penalty, the death penalty you deserved, and he died on the cross for your sins. So we're dead to the law, so let's live like it. It's not about rules. It's about this relationship with Jesus. We're released from the law to be married to Christ. It's no longer I have to. It's I get to. I'm in love with Jesus Christ. It's new life. It's life-giving. It's by the Spirit, and it leads to fruit. It's all about the I get to instead of the I have to. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... I thank you, God, that you died on the cross. You suffered the death that I deserve, that my brothers and sisters here, they deserve because you love us. I thank you, God, that in you we have died to the law. I thank you, God, that all the condemnation, all the power, all the eternal judgment we deserve was taken in the cross by you, and now we can have new life. I pray for us that we would walk in this new list of life. It would not be about the I have to's, but the I get to's. We say all this in Jesus' name, amen.